So to kick off today's episode, which is part two of our conversation with the legendary rugby player and all-black captain, Sean Fitzpatrick, I want to start with an excerpt from my book, the audiobook version, uh, the book, The Culture System, A Proven Process for Creating an Extraordinary Team Culture. It tells a famous story of Sean Fitzpatrick. In the fall of 1998, the recently retired seven-year captain of the New Zealand All Blacks rugby team, Sean Fitzpatrick, looked on as his former team lost their fifth straight game. Things were falling apart, and quickly. The last and only other time the team had a losing streak of five straight games was over 50 years ago. Since their inception in 1892, the All Blacks have dominated the world of rugby, winning over 80% of their matches. But today, they look like a shadow of their former selves. As he explains in his autobiography, when he matters, Fitzpatrick got a call from former teammate John Kerwin after the loss saying, Fitzy, you haven't done your job. You've not inducted these All Blacks the way that we were inducted. They're losing games without giving the fight of their lives. They're taking their position for granted, and they don't respect the all-black jersey. You and I are going to write a book. So Kerwin and Fitzpatrick got together with some other retired all-blacks to write down what made the all-blacks the all-blacks. What was their identity? What were their standards? They took it upon themselves to preserve and uphold the tradition, standards, and stories of the team. It was an uncomfortable experience for them as former players who had never needed it written down for them in their day, but they realized it was important to formalize this tradition in some way or it could be lost. Kerwin and Fitzpatrick agreed upon 15 principles, the first 15, just like the 15 players on the rugby pitch, and they put this into what is now called the Black Book. The book brings together and passes on the cultural language and beliefs that connect and guide the team with principles like Keep a blue head. Control your attention. Pass the ball. Leaders create leaders. Go for the gap. When you're on top of your game, change your game. The passing of the black book has now become a ritual whereby all new players are given a small black leather book. The first part of the book are pictures of the legendary teams that began this journey to present-day teams, followed by pages of the principles and the code of the team. At the end of the book, the pages are blank. As teammates tell all new players, this is where you can offer your legacy. Since the Black Book was written down and passed on, the All Blacks have had arguably two of their most dominant decades. They haven't lost more than two matches in a row during this time, winning an astounding 92% of their matches from 2000 to 2009. They went on to set a world record of 18 wins in a row between 2015 and 2016, claimed two Rugby World Cups, and have held the number one world ranking for the majority of the last 20 years. The words in the Black Book reinforce the standards and behaviors that have led to their success. As James Kerr says in his book Legacy, mottos and mantras are a key part of the roadmap to the All Blacks mindset. These linguistic heuristics go straight to the heart of the belief system, becoming shorthand for the standards and behaviors that is expected. Few teams have a storied tradition as the All Blacks, and the Black Book is a team manifesto, as discussed in Chapter 7, that took over a hundred years to create. Still, every team must find ways to reinforce the cultural standards they've established by celebrating the behaviors, not the outcomes. So I love that story because it really speaks to 
the importance of cultural language and how important it is when it comes to celebrating and continuing traditions and, and promoting the standards of our program. Just a side note, if you'd like to listen to the full book, we'll have links to the audiobook uh, on Audible, which is available on Audible in the notes to this episode. Uh, or you can go to myculturesystem.com. Now in today's episode though, Sean's gonna tell that story from his perspective, as well as talk a lot about the impact of being captain and what that impact had on him as a person. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. My name is JP Nurbin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nate Sanderson. The mission of this podcast is to help coaches build better team cultures, become better leaders, and better people. You can get the notes to this and every episode by subscribing to our newsletter at tocculture.com. There you also can learn more about our online courses and our one-on-one coaching program for coaches. Now, let's get right into the second half of our conversation with Sean Fitzpatrick. One of the things I hear you saying there when it comes to kind of these mantras, it's it's almost a way of life that should be observed in others. And then, well, of course, it makes sense, you know, that we say this all the time because it's it's who we are. It's how we show up, yeah. you know, every single day. And I think maybe that's a good bridge for us to kind of get into the role of the captain. Um, you know, when you talk about the responsibility that comes with that, you know, what is what is the primary job of the captain, you know, of the All Blacks? Um, well, I, I, to be honest, uh, Nate, I didn't really know because I, I didn't really want to be captain of the All Blacks. And, and I was just, it made me realize that I was probably quite selfish, that as a player, I just, I just wanted to do my job, really, to the best of my ability. I didn't really care about anyone else. Uh, I didn't work overly hard to transcend ages, uh, to mix with other people sort of stuck in my little group that I was quite comfortable with. I just, oh, I can't be bothered doing, you know, and and learning different cultures, which I, you know, didn't need to. Where when you're the captain, uh, if you want to be across everything, you need to be fitter, faster, stronger than you've ever been. And that's what I found, to be able to keep up with the young kids. I was, I was uh, when I became captain, I was 28 years old, 27, 28. Uh, then, and then I, you know, got older, so I had to I had to work harder, which was good. Um, I had to transcend ages. I had to talk, be able to talk to the young guys as well as the old guys. Um, I had to definitely learn the cultures because in the All Blacks, where well, New Zealand is a very multicultural country, um, which is great. That's one of our huge benefits is that we have different cultures. People bring different things to the party, so it's made of, of people telling us. What is your culture? What do you do? What would you never do? What do you like doing? And then you can say, okay, well, we can't have Michael Jones doing that. We can have him doing this. Um, and then that's, that, that encourages people to get involved. Um, looking through the eyes of other people. I hadn't really done that. And that a, is a really good thing to do. Look through the eyes of other people. And then you'll realize, ah, that's why you're doing that. Or that's how I can get you to do that. So, you know, it was, a, it was transformational for me, without, without question. You know, the first six years of my life, good at what I did, but didn't really care about much else other than being the best I could be. Where second part of my career, without question, better, faster, stronger, better analyzing, 
Uh, but I think probably the main thing next, uh, next was I was a much better person without question. Can you talk a little bit about just what the relationship was like with, with your coach? Because you mentioned, and I've heard you tell the story in a little more detail, of there was a reluctancy to name you as the captain. You were kind of the, the, the last option. And, you know, you mentioned earlier in this uh, our conversation that it was a year, maybe 18 months of you guys trying yeah. to figure out how to work together. What, what was that process like for you? Um. It was quite. It was quite tough for me actually. I quite. I struggled a bit because um, you know a lot of my mates had gone, uh, but he he had an agenda uh, and he wanted change. But it, it took us a while to to accept that, and ultimately, I, you know, the, the proof is in the results. It was the right decision, and um, he finally gave us a bit of rope. You know, after giving us, he was almost dictatorial in terms of the way he ran the team. But it's ultimately, Nate, what we needed at that time. I, I would never, I would never say it's a good thing in terms of having a dictator running a team. But sometimes, sometimes that's what you need. You need people that are just boom, 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 and then the people that want to be there, they stay. Uh, and and ultimately. You get the right people involved. And there's going to be casualties on the way. There's going to be people that don't like it. And, you know, unfortunately, um, that was the case with us in the, you know, sort of 92, 93. And then all of a sudden, you know, even in 94, we, we were struggling. You know, we, we lost to France. And, and, and it's the first time we lost a series in New Zealand. Um, you know, there's, I was under real pressure to, to, to hold my position. And, and ultimately, you know, we, we didn't realise, but he had a sort of a three, four-year plan. And then sort of three and a half years into it, uh, we started seeing some real benefits in terms of the way we were playing the game. So when you're the captain for a coach that is a dictator, as you described, is that a partnership <laughs> or what? what... You know what's your role when the coaches? I don't want to say a, a massive I, I, power, but I say, you know. I say a dictator. I'd, I'd say for probably six to eight months he was, mm-hmm. and then and then we had a had a working relationship that that started to work. I, I felt more comfortable. Um, he he had bought into what I was trying to do. Uh, he he realised I was actually quite a nice person. <laughs> <laughs> and I realised he was quite a nice person too, uh, but we had different, different, you know, different ways of, of working, and and ultimately it was, you know, uh, a relationship that worked. And he managed to press the buttons of yeah, a number of the guys in the team. That I never thought he would, and he he never thought he'd have a relationship with some of some of the guys, my mates, you know, um, that. Ultimately, you know, they they loved him. I think the work there's a, it's key to have a working relationship with the coach. Mm-hmm. Captain and coach need to have a whoever's the director of rugby or the director of sport, whatever that relationship is. Um, that needs to be good. You need to to have a have a line of communication that works on the conduit from from the team to the to the coach, coaches, vice versa, um, and you need to respect each other. You may not like each other, but you need to definitely need to respect each other, as as you've heard. 
And and then the, the captaincy of the team, I, I think that's overhyped in terms of that that role. Um, because as I got better and more confident, uh, that that leadership group grew and grew. Where where at the start it was only two or three of us with the leaders in the team, and if we played badly, we lost. Um, where where once you can grow that that leadership base, where everyone's contributor, everyone's a leader. Um, you know the captain tosses the coin and. Says we'll play that well that way. Mm. Ultimately, that's that's when I was at my most comfortable was when that was the case. I mm. didn't need to make many decisions because um, we all knew exactly what we were doing, and I didn't have to say do A, B, C. We just we had a game plan, and it was up to us to execute. It wasn't up to me to execute. I did my I did my part of, of the jigsaw, um, but you need everyone. And I mean everyone. The youngest to the oldest, and and today in sport, you know, my day, the youngest guy never said anything. This when I first started. Where now the youngest guys are probably the most vocal, which is good because they have great ideas. They, yeah. they understand them. Well, that excites me what you just shared there because a lot of the work we we do with coaches, we really encourage them not to focus on one individual to, to carry the burden, all this pressure, responsibility, but actually to try to develop a leadership group that yeah. can lead downward. So my question for you here is it still remains the same, which is how can coaches, from your perspective and your experience as, as, as many years as a captain, how can coaches better develop and empower and, and create that working relationship with their leadership group or, 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 or building that within their team? Throw, throw them in the deep end. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's always a good way to go. Um, I, think, I think, JP, that it's changing a bit now. Where when I was 27, all black captain, uh, the coach was 60 years old. Um, when now, and you see a lot in rugby now, the guys go straight from playing to coaching. Um, so you have a lot of young coaches, and it is becoming a young man's game because uh, the game's changing so quickly in terms of the way rugby is played uh, and sport is played. So I think there's a better bond between. Uh, the coaches now than, than maybe it was in my day because they actually understand they understand the playing side better and the dynamics around around a team. Um, where in my day it was, it was a bit different. When you were with in that leadership role, you were part of a couple of rebuilds. You talk about in rugby how rugby has cycles. You know, you, you you go through stages, and oftentimes it's built with the World Cup. You know, like you're trying to peak at that stage. But I think a lot of times cultures organizations, they go through cycles. They go through periods, you know, you mentioned in, in Winning Matters, which is, you know, they build things up, they get really good, but then their complacency comes in, you know? So for leaders that are part of organizations or teams that have gone through periods of complacency or they're really trying to hit the reset and rebuild, what have been some effective things in your experience in your kind of cycles with the All Blacks that you've seen that coaches have done that have been effective to help kind of reset the culture? Well, I think after, I think I've already spoken about in terms of what Laurie Maines did when he came in in 92, you know, after, after us getting knocked out of the World Cup in 91. Uh, you know, he came in and, and literally stripped everything back to the bare boards and, and changed, changed the way we operated, basically. And ultimately, that was started to show 
you know, right through to '94, and then and then the World Cup. I think ultimately he created a team that potentially should have won the World Cup in '95. Um, it's fit as the fastest All Black team I'd ever been involved in. Just a group of, of young guys wanting to be the best they could be. And then I and then what you're getting to then is is John Hart came in who. Go back right to the start of my career. He was the one that tough love. He was now now the All Black coach in '96, where he came into a team that was hugely successful, had a really good leadership model, um, and we had a lot of as was the in terms of the leadership, and we had young kids also. And he came in and realised straight away. He said, "Right, you've actually got a great playing group. You've got a great style of rugby. There's not much I can do other than." make sure that I'm creating the environment so you can continue to achieve. And he, he identified that straight away. He didn't kind of try and slap his, his coaching style on the team, um, which would have been very easy to do, but he didn't. He said, no, this is good. He said, keep doing what you're doing, blah, 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 but I'm, I'll just make sure that it's now the professional era. Things are going to be different, but I'll make sure I look after that and I can help you deliver a performance on the field. And unbelievable, 96 and 97 were two of my greatest years in the All Blacks. And, and that was a huge part of that was John Hart in terms of the environment he created. Without trying to be overpowering, he knew straight away, he knew that we had a lot of experience in that team. And he didn't need to do much other than make sure that he continued to be able to support us and what we needed to do to be the best we could be. John, I'd like to ask you this kind of just perspective on, on coaching, um, because, again, with your playing career and, and the things that you've seen over the years, you've mentioned how, you know, today we do have to coach players. I'm, I've been coaching for 20 years, and there's things that we, <laughs> we don't do today that we might have done 20 years ago because we want to keep our jobs or, what, or whatever. But there are also things that are timeless in coaching, you know, and as you see practices, evolve what what are some of the the nuggets that seem to stay the same when it comes to successful coaching you know in your experience well, well, that's probably probably the reason that i've never been a coach is that i don't think i could do what you do um so i probably haven't got many of those little nuggets um i don't know mate it's um i to be honest I, in terms of being a rugby coach today i i I don't know what I what advice I can give you. You probably you know a lot more than I do, and I say that to people. I you know I'm, I'm not a I'm not a rugby coach, um, and you know I I tell a story, and all I ask you to do is to draw your analogies from what I'm telling you, and that's you know what I've done in the last forty five minutes or so is just tell you my story, and I and I, I don't profess to be a coach. I don't profess to be a great all black captain, um, but this is a story which which people can use um, by drawing their own analogies from their own lives, and and I, and I always say it, it's not just about on the field; it's your life away from the field, it's your life at home. Um, I go back to what I said about the support networks you have around you, making sure you find the right partners in life. Um, because you being a coach, if you've got issues off the field. Uh, you're never going to be able to be the best you can be. So having a great family life or a home life is so important. Just your general well-being, um, which, is, which a lot of people don't get. 
you know, if you're unhappy, it's going to affect everything in your life. And so you need to make sure that happy at home, happy at work. And it makes a difference. And I think as you get older too, you simplify your lives, don't you? You take, you take things out of your lives because you're decluttering because you don't need 100 friends. Um, you want good people around you. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely a timeless principle. Is the, the more we take care of ourselves and maintain those relationships, the better we're going to be in all aspects of our life, whether it's coaching or, or anything else. Well, I want to transition. You know, we've, we've mentioned, we talked a little bit before we started recording about your current work. Um, and uh, you used this phrase a couple of times um, about describing the greatest person you've ever met. And I'm wondering if you could just tell a little bit about your connection to Nelson Mandela and kind of what impact that's had on, on your life. I was very fortunate to, to meet the great man a few times. Um, you know, we were the first sporting team back into South Africa in 1992 when they broke the breakdown of apartheid. Um, and, and then obviously, you know, from uh, numerous tours to South Africa and, and the Rugby World Cup in 95, um, where he, he transformed the country, basically. Uh, you know, one country, one team, um, which was which was unheard of. And for him to be able to do that, um, and then, 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 ironically, you know, five years later in, in 2000, uh, we, set up, we set up Laureus, um, um, which was set up initially to celebrate excellence in sport. Um, where we had our inaugural uh, World Sports Awards and 35 founder members, past sports people, legends on their own mind, um, selected the current sportsman, sportswoman, sports team, comeback of the year, action sport. And we had a, a great awards ceremony in Monaco. And our founding patron uh, was Nelson Mandela. And, and he walked into the room where we were all sitting in a room like this. And he said to us, he said, uh, you have a bigger responsibility than just selecting the greatest sports people every year. He said, you have the ability um, to change people's lives. Uh, so he then gave us eight words uh, that sport has the power to change the world. And that has been our, our focus, uh, our mantra uh, for the last 22 years. Um, and we use sport as a mechanism for change, uh, to help change the lives of of boys, girls, women, men um, through sport. So we support about 275 projects globally in over 50 countries. Uh, we've raised over 150 million euros uh, and just living those words of, of Mandela and, and it's making a difference without question. So long may that continue and it takes up, you know, for me it's, a, it's an absolute, absolute privilege to be the, the chairman of of both the academy and the Sport for Good Foundation, and and um, yeah, um, hopefully we're going to get bigger and stronger. And obviously, the pandemic has been a bit of an issue, but uh, our children have been safe. Um, you know, we've helped change the lives of over six million children in those twenty years, uh, which is which is phenomenal. I find it really fascinating. You know, sport has changed your life. You've spent, you've talked about numerous times, just being a part of the blacks and then being a captain, you know, typically you would say, okay, Sean's going to go into coaching or he's going to be spending his days on sky sports, you know, doing rugby breakdown, but you've decided to like do this incredibly good work. And, and my understanding of Lorius is it's most of these projects are working in disadvantaged communities. 
what drew you to this type of work? Um, I, I, well, I, obviously, initially it was the, yeah, the, the sport angle and, and, and working with other academy members. Um, but just, yeah, I went to, I'll just give you an example, uh, JP and Nate, of a project we went to. Um, it was in Sierra Leone in 2005. And uh, I went with a guy called Tony Hawk, who's, who's a world-famous skateboarder, street skater, an American. And him and I went to Sierra Leone in 2005, and it changed our lives. I've never, never seen anything like it. Um, it was just after the breakdown of the Civil War, and it was just finishing. Uh, and there was a project there called Right to Play that we were supporting. And saying to these children, you have the right to be children. Uh, so we there, I took a rugby ball, Tony took a skateboard. They had no idea who we were, these kids. Um, and we were saying to them, you have the right to smile uh, because they have been used as child combatants. You know, they've lost hands. They've just, just horrendous, horrendous uh, things that have been done to these children. And we came away from there, both of us, shocked, I think, initially in terms of what we were seeing. Um, but we also realised that sport has the power to change the world and sport had the power to make these children realise they'd just be kids and they had the right to smile, you know. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're very fortunate to be part of it and um, we're making a difference. In your book, Winning Matters, you know, there's one thing that you stress so much is that winning is very important in sport and the All Blacks and you honestly, um, I guess I don't want to say frustrated, but or look down on, but you know, you're not impressed with teams that would show up to play the All Blacks and just be happy to hang around in the game. You're like, you should be in it to win it. Um, and but I'm wondering in your work now, has that changed your perspective on sport? I mean, obviously, your expectation is as New Zealand will still go out there and, and play to win, but I'm just curious, has has the last 20 years with Laureus changed that perspective around around sport and how the environment oh, should oh, be created? If anything, it's enhanced it. Because I want people to win. I want people to be the best they can be. Uh, and that's our projects. That's, that's what we want people to be. We want them to be winners. And, you know, winning doesn't mean coming first. or, or Winning is just being the best you can be. And, and if that changes your attitude in life, fantastic. You know, mm -hmm. when we set it up 22 years ago, if we changed the life of one child, that is massive. Uh, and, you know, sport is a mechanism to get the children into the classroom, to make them realise that, you know, there's more to life than, than being naughty or being a bad, bad kid, you know. And, and unless you can actually get them into the classroom somehow, I'm not talking about literally into a classroom, but changing the way they operate. Um, and winning has a lot to do with it in terms of, being the best you can be, which is which is you know, it's easy to say, but it's harder to do. Mm -hmm. And we have amazing, you know, we we are we are not at the coalface. You know, the people that are at the coalface are the most amazing people. The project leaders, the work they do, and you, we spoke about it off here. You know, in terms of that waves for change and the way that they operate, those they are phenomenal. Those sort of people, and that's what we're here to do is to help help support them, give them the resources that they can. Yeah, you know, to liberalize progress. Yeah, and I, I think that's special because 
you know, there, you're obviously getting, you know, somewhat of a impact just by going there and seeing that, because I think so often in our society, whether it's America here and, you know, whether you're in England and, or down in New Zealand, you know, there's, we're a lot in the high performance model. It's all about just going there to reach this level of, you know, world champion, win the world cup, but just this, this, the power and participation, but not just participation, but where you're challenging and stressing and, and, and pushing people to be their best. You know, I, I think that once again, it it's, comes back to this, the, the idea of the tyranny of the or like you have to pick one or the other. And it's like, hey, we can bring participation for everyone, but we can also at the same time be challenging them. And and I think that there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, you know, what you said, Nate, about in terms of being an all, the all-black captain. Did I really want that? No. Um, imagine if I hadn't been thrown in the deep end. I just, it would have been such a chunk of my life that I, I would never ever experience that I could actually, I can actually do that. You know, which, which, if I hadn't been exposed to that, if I hadn't been exposed to public speaking, um, which is one of the scariest things in life to do, apparently, is being a public speaker, um, I would have missed out on so much without, you know. That's why I encourage people. I encourage people to try things. You know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You're going to fail. Yeah. Have a go. You know, we, we, I saw, Nate, you spoke about it in terms of that fear of failure. We, we talk about that all the time. The fear of failure motivates you to try. And people, people you know, take that wrongly sometimes, that fear of failure inhibits their performance. Well, if you actually, if you actually practiced harder and harder, that is a way to harness that fear of failure. Yeah, I love that bit in the book there. You talked about that embracing the fear of failure, which is oftentimes people are having that message around play fearless. But actually, we had a really in interesting person in the podcast a couple months ago, uh, a professor out of Stanford, and she talks about uh, her, her one of her New York Times bestselling books was The Upside of Stress. But she talks about how some let stress or, you know, like the moment of fear of failure become this thing that hurts their performance, but the best use that stress to enhance their performance. And, yeah. and that was so clear in your book, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'm going to get you out of here on this question, um, which is, you know, might be a little bit controversial, but my question for you is 2023 France Rugby World Cup. Ireland just has done the unthinkable. They beat the All Blacks, I believe, twice on their own turf out of three times. You got any predictions for who's going to, you know, bring it home in 2023. I, I think it's going to be one of the closest World Cups ever. Unfortunately, we've got quite a few teams, sort of the leading teams on one side of the draw, which, uh, you know, quarterfinal, two of those teams are going to get knocked out. Uh, I, you know, I think at the moment, quite clearly, Ireland's, Ireland and France are the best two teams in the world at the moment. Uh, I think France has more depth. Uh, and to win a World Cup, you need, need a lot of depth. And, you know, think of the, probably the greatest World Cup team I've seen is the 2015 All Blacks when they won up here. Um, they had 31 players that could have played in the World Cup final and they wouldn't have had a drop-off in performance from any one of those players. Uh, and I think France is getting there in terms of having 31 players that could play in a World Cup final. Uh, so they're quite scary. Ireland are the same, but they, they maybe have an Achilles heel with, with Johnny Sexton. Uh, you know, if he gets injured, uh, it's a bit of a drop off to to the next. But we've still got ten months to go, so you know, there's you know Carberry, Joey Carberry, and those guys 
can come through and get more experience. But yeah, Ireland looked very good. But I would not write the All Blacks off at your peril. <laughs> I don't think they will. Ireland sadly seems to peak a little bit too early, uh, at least the last few times. So, well, thank you, uh, Sean, for coming on here. It was uh, it was a great great conversation. Enjoy your work. All right, we really appreciate Sean coming on to tell his stories and his perspective on the All Blacks to bring to life so many of the stories that we've read in books like mine or, or James Kerr's book, Legacy. So thanks to Sean and thanks to you for listening to the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and check us out at tocculture.com.